This is The Secret Life of Language, a podcast from the University of Melbourne's School of Languages and Linguistics. Aboriginal ecological knowledge cannot be separated from us as people. That country is our kin. It's seen more as, like, I guess, your mother or your brother or your sister. Who knows what the mythology and the stories and the the, the richness of the connection to that species is. None of us even really know that potatoes come from the Andes. The main part of Makarata is truth-telling, and that's what the Uluru Statement from the Heart asked for. I think if we can unsilence, we can start telling truths, I think the way forward will become illuminated in a way that we can all just start moving along it together. I'm Adrian Hearn, and this is The Secret Life of Language, a podcast from the School of Languages and Linguistics at the University of Melbourne. As you've just heard in this episode, we discuss the deepening need for engagement with First Nation knowledge to build a sustainable food system. And we consider how all of us can personally acknowledge the truths of the past to build common ground for the future. I'm joined by Zena Comston, a Barkunji woman from Western New South Wales who is a research fellow in urban environments. And Chris Williams, a board member at the Collingwood Children's Farm with a passion for growing sweet potatoes. My co-host today is Dr. Lara Anderson from the University of Melbourne School of Languages and Linguistics. So, Zena, I'd like to begin with you. I recently attended a seminar you gave where you explained some of the opportunities and pitfalls in the relationship of Aboriginal ecological knowledge to food production and consumption in Australia. So to get us underway, could you briefly recap that discussion for our listeners? Yeah, it's really, I guess it's a really kind of um, problematic area when I think of it in terms of like what's happened with the explosion of bush tucker. Sometimes some of the movements that happen look like they're empowering Aboriginal people and their ways of knowing, and actually all they're doing is using Aboriginal people and their knowledge systems as a commodity to then control the narrative. And to make money as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and a lot of the time these things don't actually have any real on-the-ground benefit to Aboriginal people or their communities. So the whole thing's really complicated, and if we had a four-hour podcast, you know, Mm. we could probably never get to the end of that um, type of thing. But one thing I definitely see is that there's just a real fundamental problem, and I see this the, the core of this problem, and a lot of people will probably find this a bit of a mental tangent, but the core of the problem is truth-telling in this country. It's never happened. No. And I think that it's causing a psychosis for all of us that is making us unwell, and that's turning into a physical thing fairly soon because our food systems um, are getting more and more broken as we go down the path of what's happening to the environment. And I, yeah, I don't want to sort of be too negative, but I think if we don't have truth-telling, we're never going to get to the point where the veracity of Aboriginal ways of knowing and the empowerment of us as peoples and our communities can happen because to me that's the only way that we're actually going to have the best possible form of our knowledge systems helping to make country 
and all of us, black and white, healthier. Mm. Because until we have that truth-telling at the moment, a lot of our knowledges are just seen as something that can be separated from us, used by the real scientists. And actually, that's not the way it works. Aboriginal ecological knowledge cannot be separated from us as people. And until we're empowered, you're always going to get a really strange, watered-down version of what we know and have known for a really long period of time. And even the way knowledge is produced in Australia is like a fundamental problem as well because academia is so unfriendly to um, Aboriginal people and ways of knowing and knowledge systems because it cannot allow room for a different type of pedagogy. It has a... Um, a really strange structure where one person is the expert or a few, a handful of people are the expert and they know everything and they are kind of, you know, the holder of all knowledge. Whereas in an Aboriginal system, if you say that you're the smartest person in the room, most of the room will bust their asses laughing because you could not be dumber than <laughs> yeah, to say yeah. that. And we always collaborate. Like I'm quite uncomfortable in this system because I'm speaking into, yeah. as someone who knows everything and I know that I know nothing. Mm. Like I really do know that. I haven't grown up on country. You know, I have had very little access to, to that being knowledge. on country. Most of what I know comes from books. Yeah. And I'm very lucky that some of what I know comes from elders. But we all need to come together. And the only way that's going to happen is if some of the injustices of the past are sorted out and the biggest injustice of all is that our knowledges are not seen as anything that's really viable or powerful or of real benefit, only little bits that people can take. But just in terms of bush foods, bush tucker, I know the Research and Development Corporation for Horticulture in Australia is called Hort Innovation Australia, unsurprisingly. And um, I did a brief sort of desktop review with them, I think it was early last year, on the Indigenous foods industry. And I had a research assistant, all that stuff, and it was just simply ringing around and emailing Indigenous groups, uh, you know, white growers, just to see where people thought it was at and dealing with some of these issues that Zena talked about. And that was sort of heartening in some ways in terms of people taking the issues very seriously and desperately wanting advice about how do you make commercial food growing for Aboriginal people really meaningful and have Aboriginal people included right from the start, at the end of it, I kind of went, oh, my God, is because it was made clear to me, because our report sort of said this has to be front and centre, otherwise this, this is going to become another kind of food dispossession, if you like. And there was a kind of message back saying, well, yeah, that was all allowed to be in the report, so that was great. But... It was this idea, but no, we're talking about commercialisation in the end, and that's always going to be big scale. And there was a very interesting um, anecdote told to me by Jeff Woodall, who's a West Australian horticulturist. He's worked with Aboriginal groups and white farmers to grow Indigenous food crops. He said when he got some publicity for it on the ABC, he then had emails and phone calls from Europe, China and America saying things like, oh, we just think that's amazing. We can have four shipping containers in Fremantle in a week. And he's like, no, these crops don't even exist on that scale yet. That's why I don't have any answers to this. I'm just, you know, letting you know. It's a sort of frightening thing to think that that, that potential demand, mm. the novelty of it, people love, but how overwhelming this could be. So there's huge opportunities there. But on the other hand, there are people who are already set up to potentially take over these crops if they ever have potential. And potentially even invest in them and take ownership of them in yeah, a commercial and that, and legal sense. And that's, 
I, I guess the thing I because I, I grow in some indigenous species and I'm growing them to see whether they're kind of delicious. To be honest, to start <laughs> with, <laughs> I just want to road test that. <laughs> but I just think sometimes, well, I don't know the stories, the real connection to country of some of these arid zone sweet potatoes that I grow. And I know some of them are very significant. What's the name for sweet potato? The, well, there's lots of indigenous, like in New Zealand, it's kumara. That's a Maori. That's right. Well, that's and that's an actual sweet potato, the kumara. So here as well, indigenous. No, no. So the, the ones here are uh, same genus, Opomia. There's about three or four that are very significant to First Nations, you know, desert people by and large. Mm. And, um, you know, one of them, which Ipomia costata, is features in a lot of Aboriginal art from mm. Central Australia. You yes. see yam dreaming and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, who knows what the mythology and the stories and the the, the richness of the connection to that species is. The reality is now it's a, over 500 years, a massive global crop. None of us none of us even really know that potatoes come from the Andes, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, yeah. So it's that. Lost in translation. Yeah, all of that. But, but to yeah. add to that as well, like, mm. so the people who are still out, you know, collecting that yam that you're talking yeah. about, well, there's lots of different ones all over Australia, but what people don't realise is that actually there's communities of plants that have to exist together. And a lot of the old people know a lot about this. Right. But every time someone shines a light on something like this, all this new information comes up. But I just feel like a lot of people don't even realise that there's any, like, strength or they don't even realise what's what's available if someone actually shone the light. So, mm. for example, like, the stuff that you're growing those aunties would only pick it at a certain time and only when a flower next to it is a certain colour or doing something because they know that that's when the medicine in it is at its absolute best. That's when it tastes the best. Sure. But also that's you pick it like that because it then relates to something else that needs it to get to that point before you can eat it and usually that's when it's at its most delicious as well. So there's yeah. all these circular things going on mm. that no one knows about and the pharmaceutical companies are really um, the only groups that are doing a lot of research and, you know, scientific research around especially um, Indigenous plants' uses in terms of medicines, but they're not speaking to any of the old people mm. and they're not trying to partner with anyone in any way because that's not in the remit of pharmaceutical companies as we know. No. But they don't realise that that plant doesn't have any medicinal value probably for nine and a half months of the year. Right. And also things are trying to be grown as a monoculture and guess what? It doesn't work. Aboriginal plants are like Aboriginal people. They need their communities and if you don't if you don't understand how their communities work, you are never going to get the benefit yeah. of that plant to its full potential. You'll get a watered-down factory version of it. So this is what I'm sort of saying about... About the profound shift that needs to happen. Yeah, yeah. we need to involve Aboriginal people's ecological knowledge in all this scientific work that we're doing because... Sure. Watching things for 60,000 years and passing that information down is not some hokey, weird, like, no, folklore. Yeah. It's science because science is careful observation. Mm. And people whose, you know, foundational work comes from science dismiss all of this. Sure. It's, to me, yeah. it's bizarre. It's yeah. impoverished. Because I've been interested in, in Ipomia, talk, using scientific language, Ipomia, which is, the, you know, where sweet potatoes come from, and mm. also Dioscoria, which are yams. Mm. One of the things that has really occurred to me around what you're saying is that, and this really gets to the kind of core argument that Bruce Pascoe makes mm. in Dark Emu and even and Bill Gamage as mm. well, is that... You know, I guess the violence of Australian, the d dispossession wipped out in some areas that, and the people chose not to see Aboriginal food production 
And what fascinates me is that in New Guinea, for example, it's uncontroversial that the people of New Guinea are agriculturalists and horticulturists and that the Maori were too, okay? Yeah. And, you know, in the case of New Guinea, you know, five, 6,000, probably 40,000 years of growing yams, in the last few hundred years growing sweet potato, and we can say, oh, they're gardeners and everything else. And yet with, the, with Aboriginal people, that refusal to see that, to see that cultivation means we're, we're starting off at such a low base. It, it's, it's to do with language, actually, like to say that crops were grown using the active voice. Aboriginal people cared and cultivated and made sure it wasn't a monoculture and actually... And using the scientific terms as well and introducing it into all of that curriculum. Yeah. yeah. Zina, yeah. is this partly what you mean by truth-telling, is to have that recognition of a tradition that's been so vibrant and powerful? I think it's a really good starting point Yeah. because our ecological knowledge is a seed and it's it's you know has the potential to, to germinate thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years of knowledge and it's not for the taking it's for the sharing for all of us to share we have to do it in an aboriginal way we don't take there's always reciprocity so if we can't learn how to work together in a reciprocal way an aboriginal way then the veracity of our knowledge systems and this scientific knowledge that's been built over the longest period of time that you, can, you just can't even fathom how long this has been going on for, all of Australia doesn't get to benefit. Like everything that's happening with our environment at the moment, um, I'm Barkindji, so I'm from Western New South Wales, and our Darling River is an absolute mess. There's hardly any water in it. Two million fish washed up dead in a period of a few months at the start of this year. And still Aboriginal elders are not being brought into the conversation about how to manage that waterway and what's going on. You know, we're, all of Australia is really missing out and all of our waterways are interconnected. And I really have to say that I'm really worried for all of the waterways in Australia because, you know, us mob out in Western New South Wales, one of the first hit by agriculture, by sheep being run through. Within 20 years, you know, my own country from all reports and diary entries, which, you know, people like Uncle Bruce Pascoe have really illuminated and I'm so thankful to him to starting people thinking in this way. Um, you know, my country was reduced to a dust bowl and it had been a place that, you know, could provide everything that people needed for such a long time, no matter what was happening in the environment. And I just, yeah, I really worry about how little um, our elders and our knowledge systems are being incorporated meaningfully in a way that actually bolsters and supports us as well because we have an active custodianship of country that underlies every part of our culture. If you support and bolster us, you support and bolster yourselves because why would you not give someone an active role when their whole being is trained towards that custodianship? It just seems like we're all missing out big time. That yeah. depth of knowledge, Zina, that you're talking about, it suggests a complex understanding of the environment mm. and yet that complexity, I feel, in the discussion of the Murray-Darling anyway, the mm. river system is reduced to the word drought Yeah, in, you know, in official talk, government talk. Yeah. And so what you're suggesting is, well, why don't we go back to basics here and start pushing beyond uh, that simplistic explanation and start involving people that have experience. Yeah, and I see that as like, that's why I'm talking about truth-telling because unfortunately I read a lot of the comments in articles in the conversation and other ones that I look at to do with Aboriginal ecological knowledge and I see from the comments and, you know, some of the people that I hear talking as well, they actually don't believe that our ways of knowing 
have any strengths. People still see our culture and our knowledge as being in the past and as being dead. And I just think that that ignorance is going to undo all of Australia, not just Aboriginal people, but everyone, because there's so much that we can do together and we're only using one half of our brain. Yeah. And I studied mostly white farmers 20 years ago, Uh, became very sympathetic to the sort of the lessons that Australian agriculture had learned. But fast forward to now, and I, I, I think that, you know, this whole idea of land degradation that, that confronted people in the 80s, it led to the creation of the land care program, for example. Uh, when the Darling River ran a thousand k's of blue-green algae, even then, you know, a tragedy is unfolding with the Murray-Darling Basin, big time. There are two things. One is I think we actually have to confront that, if you like, the European experiment of agriculture in Australia has been a colossal stuff up, right? Even if you put dispossession of Aboriginal people to the side, and just look at it from some sort of scientific technical point of view, for all the extraordinary infrastructure of agricultural science and everything else and putting people on the land, building silos and rail infrastructure, add climate change in, it just hasn't worked, right? So we're all privileged to be able to go to the supermarket and get all this food, but the food system is not sustainable. And how you unpack that without being negative, just to say, actually, wow, this wasn't the right way to manage this country. Then how you be honest about that then might be the way the path to actually acknowledging Aboriginal ecological knowledge and saying, for all the, how confronting the timescales are, of saying, actually, this was owned, occupied, managed for food production for an enormity of time. People think that the information's not there just because they don't know about it. There's a lot there. Every time a light gets shone on a certain part of Aboriginal culture that hasn't kind of been shown before, people go, oh, my God, how didn't we know? You know, Uncle Bruce wrote this book, dark emu and it's like it came at exactly the right time and everyone was not everyone but a lot of Australia was was ready to start listening and you you hear people just go oh my god it's blown my mind but it's not that it wasn't there before it just hadn't found a way of coming to the surface in a way that was at the right time in the right place for the right people but still like in the piece I just wrote that got published I'm also saying A lot of people read Dark Emu, which was actually a call to arms for all of us to reconfigure how we think about everything that we're doing to this country and our relationship to it. And a lot of people kind of took it as, you know, this is great, I'll plant heaps of Indigenous plants on my private property and they don't even know whose country they're on. That's not what Uncle Bruce was trying to do. People's personal responsibility is still not being kind of enacted and all of us have a role to play um, in, in actually fixing some of the bits that are broken. And, yeah, a lot of what's broken is that we haven't found a way to come together where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people feel safe because a lot of the time it's all about taking. If you look at the narratives around Aboriginal ecological knowledge, it's like we've got to get some of this, we've got to sprinkle it on top, we've got to tap into it. I've heard horrible stories about Aboriginal nations where I've got mates who've come together with the CFA trying to share information and to do things together. And, you know, some of the people in those organisations have gone, yeah, no, we're right, mate, we got it. Like, we'll just, can we just use that bit? And these elders are going, uh, no, you can't just use that bit because everything in our culture and all of our knowledge systems rely on things being done in a holistic way because every living thing and heaps of not living things are interconnected in a matrix. And if you stuff up one, the others don't work either. And it just goes down the line until everything starts suffering. There's so many things that are a massive problem right now. 
and so little has been done to bolster and support those elders who have a lot of um, knowledge in this area about how to do fires and burning in a way that's medicinal for country and also can help negate some of these massive, you know, bombs that are Mm. going off in terms of there not being enough water and not enough management of country. And now, you know, look what happens. Zeno, you mentioned the importance of knowing some history and taking personal responsibility for when you go and try and grow something, for example, and you think, what is the land that I'm growing this Mm. on? You know, what is the history of this land? How did it come into my possession and the possession of the person who owned it before? And if you go back far enough in time, you unravel a whole story there. Maybe I could ask both of you a kind of wrap-up question here. In terms of taking personal responsibility for um, how food is grown, what are the key things people should be reflecting on within themselves? I have this connection to the Collingwood Children's Farm at the moment, where they've, they've been building a First Nations garden. Maybe what I think it is that you need these hubs where people can learn personal responsibility, if you like. Because some places are, are suburbia now, right? And of course, the, it's the sovereignty of the Indigenous people is still there, but it's not so obvious. Someone like the Collingwood Children's Farm, right on the river there with that beautiful escarpment close to Dites Falls, it kind of screams at you, wow, this is Aboriginal country. So the fact that they're growing Indigenous food plants there, maybe you have places that are, if you like, in your face obvious that, that they have this history and that's where the educational process... Or it's taken into the schools maybe as a compulsory in, part of the in curriculum. Excursions, mm. incursions, all of that. Mm. To me, people can't work out how to take their own path forward, you know, that enacts their own understanding of their obligations unless they know and the unsilencing is the thing that I think is going to get us all started. And the Uluru Statement from the Heart, One of the main parts of it, and a lot of Aboriginal people don't agree with Uluru's statement from the heart, I very much do because I really, really liked the fact that one of the main parts was about the Makarata, which is, you know, it's peacemaking after a really big kind of terrible, um, catastrophic kind of run-in. I don't know the exact way to kind of explain that word, but it's it's peacemaking and and the main part of Makarata is truth-telling and that's what the Uluru statement from the heart asked for. And that really resonated with me because, yeah, like I've said, you know, just before, I think if we can unsilence, we can start telling truths, I think the way forward will become illuminated in a way that we can all just start moving along it together. Well, I want to thank you both so much for your participation in this talk. I know I've certainly learned a lot. I'm sure I speak for all of us. Thank you. Thanks for being here with us. (laughs) Pleasure. Thank you. So thank you, Zena Comston and Chris Williams, for being on this episode of Secret Life of Language. For more info and other episodes, head to the Secret Life of Language website. Licensed under Creative Commons, copyright, University of Melbourne, 2021.